Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Tim, today we've got Ward Pulsing, a Colorado oil and gas legend on the legend. Tripping Over the Barrel podcast. Legend. I don't use that word lightly. Does he agree with that? I don't know about that. I don't know. I'm not quite here, I don't think. <laughs> so so Ward grew up just a little bit east of me, Colorado kid. Um, went to school of mines, I know that, and uh, has had quite a successful career in a number of different stints in the upstream oil and gas industry. But Ward, you probably tell the story better than me. Why don't you give us your kind of upbringing and what led you to eventually being CEO of Camino Natural Resources? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. It's uh, I appreciate you guys doing this, and it's always fun. And um, yeah, you know, lucky to, in a sense, grow up in the oil industry. Um, I was born in Western Missouri. Uh, parents left the farm, but uh, my dad was blue collar, working out on pipelines for the old Panhandle Eastern Pipeline, and we moved around Kansas and Oklahoma, and then eventually to to Brighton, Colorado, where I spent junior high and high school. So got to kind of grow up in it, and. Uh, Really enjoyed it and grew up, you know, in that more rural part of it. Lots of small towns and trailer parks and things like that. But it just gave you a good appreciation for the business and what it's like truly, truly day to day out in the field. And in a typical, uh, you know, father wanting his either son or daughter to, to have a great life. It's like, well, if you love this industry, which I, I did uh, as a kid, it's like, well, get that education <laughs> so you can have a lot more choices in life. So, uh Going to uh, high school here in Colorado made it really easy to go to the school of mines, so that was great. And then ultimately got a, a, an MBA from Rice University in Houston. Then my first part of my career actually was in Alaska. My first job was B BP, uh, living in Anchorage, working all the North Slope fields and really spent my 20s there. I lived in Anchorage for eight or nine years and, and loved it. Always wanted to, always an outdoors person and wanted to, to, to see uh, the bigger, broader world. So that was great. And then... Just kind of uh, over time, I kind of find myself, uh, I really enjoyed the technical side and the business side of, of oil and gas and have really always wanted to blend the two together and have really kind of proactively tried to do that throughout my career. And I won't bug you or, bar, or bore you really with all the stops that I've made, but there were a few of them in there after BP actually worked for the Big Bad Enron uh, for a couple of years in the late 90s uh, before it all fell apart and was lucky enough to leave there about a year before it, it went the wrong direction. So some history there. Love all the end. That's fortunate. Jokes. Very fortunate. <laughs> Hell yeah. Super fortunate. Yeah. Makes me look a visionary leaving at the right time, but uh, it had nothing to do with, with that. But um, yeah. And then just became a little more entrepreneurial over time. And uh, ultimately was part of a little 10 person oil company in Denver in the early two thousands in the old coal bed methane boom of uh, Wyoming. And that led me to, um, Kind of still want to do some some more entrepreneurial things and ultimately uh, helped uh, got into the investment banking side of the business with Watrous that became Scotia Watrous after I hired them to sell our company there uh, in the Colbert Methane play. So kind of transitioned into uh, more of the investment banking side and made good friends with uh, Maynard Holt when he was at Goldman Sachs and uh, he and I co-led both our, for our companies worked for, for some same, same clients. So we all kind of thought someday uh, we thought there was a better way to do it. So when Maynard teamed up with Bobby Tudor and started Tudor Pickering and Holt, they hired five or six of us kind of MDs at that time to, to bring a business line to it. So it was 
lucky enough to be a kind of founding partner of TPH back in kind of 07, 08 timeframe and um, stayed there seven or eight years, all great friends and still very, very close today, but still had this uh, kind of hankering to want to start an oil and gas company. So when I hit about 50, uh, which is a few years back still, but I uh, wanted to start uh, an oil and gas company. So left TPH and ultimately founded um, Centennial, which ultimately became public. Here is CDEV and great, great friends still running that. And, uh, and then after Centennial wanted to try it all over again and we started uh, Camino. So obviously Centennial more focused in the Delaware Basin and Camino were now focused in Oklahoma, both times backed by NGP. So that's the maybe not too quick, but uh, <laughs> um, background to get here. It's not bad. Hey, I, awesome. I, quick question on the background. So were you with Enron proper or with Enron oil and gas? No, Enron proper. And they had a little Denver office. So that actually got me back to Denver. I, I had, this was kind of like 1998. And prior to that was, you know, had left kind of after college. And, uh, but this got me back to back home to Colorado, which was great. So no, Enron proper. And we had a group basically investing Enron dollars, whether it was in debt or equity into uh, upstream companies that could hopefully then kind of feed their product into uh, bigger Enron's pipelines. Hmm. So Tim, I feel like we've heard something like this before, right? I think it was Dan Pickering, Missouri, Alaska, <laughs> financing, right? Yeah, there's, there's, there's some similar paths. And then you guys actually met up. At, Did you guys know each other in, in Alaska? No, he was with Arco and I was with BP. We were there. We did overlap and it was kind of funny there. When, when you're in Alaska at that time, this is the, the mid to late eighties into the kind of early nineties. Um, you, uh, you were either Arco or you were BP and it was a little bit like red and blue today. <laughs> you didn't, uh, <laughs> dealt with, you, you certainly dealt with people, you know, uh, operationally, but I say that with some joking. I clearly had some good Arco friends, but I didn't know Dan then. So it was really cool when, um, Basically, Bobby and Maynard teamed up with Dan and brought the rest of us in. So, yeah, a lot of history like that. I, he went to the Missouri School of Mines, uh, or at least called that at the time. And uh, that was my second choice, but it was a lot cheaper staying in state. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Backup school. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I want to I want to dig in a little bit to the, the transition to first, you know, starting up CDEV um, and then moving over to Camino. Um, Centennial or, or CDEV as it's known on the NYSE is a publicly traded company, like you said, focuses in the Delaware Basin uh, and then left there, it looks like 2016-ish and took over uh, starting up Camino, which is Oklahoma. So can you compare and contrast a little bit, uh, you know, a publicly traded company versus a privately held company and some of the intricacies of managing a company in, in the Permian? Um, versus in Oklahoma assets. Yeah, sure. And, and you kind of go back to the centennial days, um, maybe a little history there. We were, um, it was kind of when we started that in 2013, but we're kind of first looking in the Midland Basin and uh, tried to do a few deals and just kind of got blown out of the water and just felt that we weren't going to be able to, to start something up there. I, I'm not an explorer, so to speak, so I'm not going to try to go out and try to you know grab new acreage that's way out in the middle of nowhere and kind of make it work. Uh, I'm more of a, a little more lower risk uh, type of person, so wanted to start with something that I knew worked and build from that. So that was always a strategy. So we're trying to do that in Midland Basin and just yeah made the 
conclusion that we were just not paying enough. And so at that time, the Delaware was really, really early stages. There was only a couple of horizontal wells drilled in the Delaware uh, on, on the Texas side, that is, in kind of Reeves County. So we ended up um, uh, buying a company there and getting started in 20, uh, yeah, so I guess that would have been about 2014. So, uh, or early, so it was, uh, for me, it was a stretch kind of technically, but ultimately, you know, the, the play came, came to Reeves County and that was, that was great and everything turned out really well. So what we were doing though, was so amazing to watch the different, the evolution of shale, um, because one piece I skipped over, like in the early, uh, 2000, 2005, 2006, I was actually started the U uh, S division for Interplus in the Bakken. Uh, they made an acquisition. Oh kind of very, very early days of the Bakken. So felt like I've run with shale since really the beginning of the early 2000s. But so you go to the Delaware back in 2016 and there, there was no pure play public company focused on the Delaware. And we were kind of rate, there were a couple of companies kind of racing to do that jagged peak here in town as well and ourselves. And um, so uh, we did everything we could to get ready to go public. Well, what, when, why? Well, you're backed by, by a private equity company and you've got to get them liquidity uh, is, you know, is eventually and sooner is better. And the market was kind of clamoring for uh, Permian pure plays. So we were trying to be the first Delaware based one. And um, it, it, so you start kind of going through all that process with the stock exchanges and, and all of that, which is a lot of work. It's a good six months worth of work and a few million dollars and lots of distracted time, uh, just getting all your numbers right. And really, got, we were ready for our IPO. We were a couple of weeks away from um, the roadshow uh, to go meet all of the potential investors and then got uh, de-SPAC'd. So uh, the, the SPAC at our Riverstone back when with uh, Mark Papa running it was looking mm. for an acquisition and uh, we were at the right place at the right time. So instead of going public ourselves, so to speak, we went through the SPAC process and became public as CDEV. Uh, through that. And uh, there oh, were a few cool. of us, uh, you know, who stayed. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, all right. Fun I'm a little idea. naive to this. Uh, SPAC, that's one of those blank <laughs> check companies. <laughs> yeah, you might have heard of them recently. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I, I just find it somewhat ironic thinking that the SPAC, you know, mania of today really isn't focused on our energy, obviously, it's focused. Some of it's focused on EV and all that kind of energy, but not our traditional EMP space. Now, there's a couple of them out there, but you know, we were kind of there before SPACs were cool, so to speak, as an industry <laughs> five years ago. And so now it's great. You know, obviously, our industry got a lot of criticism around SPACs in the last few years, but now it's just kind of great to see uh, other industries getting pummeled instead of us about SPACs. <laughs> hey, I mean, that, that's happening right now. I think SPACs were a lot cooler like yeah, three weeks it's ago. it's amazing. Yeah. Crazy. So <laughs> yeah, I got a question right. here. You started, you started two oil companies now, uh, you know, with, with some private equity backing and, you know, one's public or, or you know, get, aiming at public. And I, I don't know if you're aiming that way with Camino or not, but what are the, what's the lesson you took from starting Centennial to going to Camino? What are the things you learned that you're doing differently? I mean, obviously you chose a different basin, but I think that's economics, but what, what did you learn from one that you're being able to apply now? No, that's a great question. You know, and you're right. It's clearly a different basin. And that was based on economics just felt when we started this really in 2017, where we got going, it was just too expensive to get into the, to get in the good stuff, so to speak. 
in the Permian. So we needed to go somewhere else and time will tell whether that was a good or bad decision. But, you know, yeah, you just get better at, at everything, right? You, um, you know, we're reporting up uh, to, to, in our case, NGP, uh, you know, how, how to do that better, how to, you know, keep your um, money providers, so to speak, and your partners from that side, you know, more attuned to what you're doing. The last thing in the world you want to do is surprise them. So just learning how to, to keep them abreast of everything and then learn really the, through your performance, quite frankly, to get some rope and to be able to um, you know, get, get some space, you know, to run the business the right, the right way. So I think it's, it's not dissimilar to public that way in the sense that you've got a, you've got a forecast and you've got to meet your forecast and you've got to, you know, work with great ethics and, and to make it all come together. And I think those are really similarities between a relatively large private like we are and, and, and running a public company. But so, yeah, so that, that was kind of what I'm just more, you know, you just get better with time. Right. And it, it's, uh, it's hard, it's hard to do. It's not easy. And, you know, one of the things that I, I at least remember with, with Camino is you guys started out, you know, proved yourself as, as a, a driller in, in Oklahoma and then NGP made a move and kind of rolled up a whole bunch of companies into Camino. So it was almost like overnight you went from, I don't know, 30 ish people to closer to a hundred and had a lot more acreage. What was it like to roll a couple of companies in um, and, and be able to still scale despite being in its infancy? Yeah, no, that's, that, that's been, um, that's been good to do that, but, but, but difficult to your comment. I think what one thing that did really change between the era, so to speak, of putting Centennial together and then putting Camino together is scale and the need for that scale, whether you're public or private, you know, literally today, Camino is four times bigger than, than Centennial CDEV was when they went public, wow. you know, they're, they're bigger than we are now, but yeah, just amazing. And, and, and so it, it's hard to believe. And today I would tell you, we're too small to go public. <laughs> and here we are four times bigger than the equivalent five years ago. And we were big enough then, right? So dramatically changed. And, and, and we, could kind of, we could see that coming. And, and therefore scale was where we were going for immediately. And we, we ended up you know, getting our beachhead kind of by ourselves, so to speak, making our first acquisition and get going in Oklahoma. But then you're right, quickly rolled in two other NGP companies and then kind of made a fourth deal for cash. We bought um, Chesapeake out of their merge position. So we kind of did four deals together that, that brought all this. And, and it took after putting those together, because you got, you know, different accounting systems and different uh, production systems and just every piece of software. You know, it's not like you had four different versions, but you certainly had two or three. So it really took a year to, to kind of get all of that cleaned up and under one system and that we could manage. And at the same time, you're drilling wells, right? And trying to improve performance that way. So it's a big juggling of balls. And, that, and that's, I think, a big change from, like I say, four or five years ago to today is scale. And, but luckily we've got it now. We're 140,000 acres and 45,000 uh, BOE a day net in Oklahoma. Nice. So, uh, yeah, got some scale pretty quick, but really pulling all that together. Lots of uh, our accounting team would, you know, pull their hair out if I said, let's do another new deal tomorrow. But that, that won't stop us <laughs> if we can find the right one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think the, the phrase that, that I've heard is, you know, you're sort of building the, the highway as you're driving on it. 
right? It just, just sort of the way yeah. it, it, it kind of went, but how does that work? You know, did, was it, was it your suggestion? Was it NGP's idea saying we've got all these companies, this is a more cost-effective move, or this is the, the best operator out of these companies? Like, I'm just curious, how does that private equity decision get made and, and who wins out? And, and like, how does it, how does it all shake out? Who initiates that? Yeah, it's a great question. And because there, there's, you know, obviously lots of that's been happening the last couple of years. Not, we're not the only one who's kind of gone through a process like that. And, and it's a, it's kind of all the above, but, but where it fits is like, especially within a portfolio of private equity companies under the same umbrella, you know, different companies have different skills. And, you know, w- w- one that we brought in, great team, 89 Energy, John Mark and team out of Oklahoma City, they were really land focused. They they weren't built to you know drill a, you know run two or three rigs kind of kind of thing. And and that was our skill is more about operations and uh, the implementation kind of execution of a large drilling program. So we were built to go big from the very beginning. So when an NGP is looking at okay, the market's requiring bigger and bigger deals. I've got three teams here playing you know next door to each other. It might make sense to put them all together under the team that's built yeah. more to just execute for a long time and get LOE down and things like that. And and that's what we were built for. So I think we were kind of the obvious consolidator of all those things. And that's not unique. It's been happening in other basins with other providers as well. Like Tim, what was it's the, also, what was the know, phrase? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ward. What's that? Well, I was just going to say, no, uh, go, go ahead, Ward. Being the, okay, sorry. Just being the consolidator, so to speak, uh, it, it's not just kind of NGP or in any provider saying, hey, do this. You know, it's definitely the request and, and ask is, do, do, do these, from your all's opinion as the producer, do these fit together? Do you, can you get one plus one plus one equals four as opposed to just just scale? So it's definitely a two-way street on, on, on whether a deal like that comes together. No, that's, that's great insight. And uh, Tim, what was the, um, the equation that Chuck Yates brought up the CEOs per CEO per BOE? Yes. That, that, that ratio has been changing <laughs> the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I got a question. So, you know, obviously with the, the COVID, COVID uh, reaction and the downturn and the price reactions, everything happened, you know, over the last year or so, what, what did you do? Or is, I guess you you probably reduce your rig counts, uh, change your capital, uh, you know, allocations like everybody else. But what was what was your response? And then how quickly are you rebounding in that? Yeah, it's I would I would get this question. I started in the, the industry in 1986. So up until I would argue the last year, I would have right. said that was the worst year, worst year to start in this industry. Yeah. I bet oil wasn't last negative though. Yeah, it's either it's either the worst year or the second worst year. I think eighty three could be argued too. Yeah, I agree. Right in there, and but I believe the the downturn that we've been like yes a year ago. I'm like, well, they're close. Who knows? Uh, today, I would say the downturn that we've come through, hopefully we're out of the bottom, but it is worse, quite frankly, in just lots of ways. So I think this is the worst in the last 50 years that we we as an industry have had to deal with. Um, for us, lucky enough, uh, we hedge hard. And uh, for instance, we we had for last year, we had hedged in 2018 and 20, 2019 for 2020, right? So so we had $55 oil all year for us, effectively nice. 100% almost of our production. 
Yeah, so nice. we did not suffer, um, you know, declining uh, revenue. Actually, our EBITDA and, and revenue last year in 2020 was higher than 2019. Just kind of hard to fathom. Uh, but it was all due to hedging. You know, and right now our hedging is, is is good, but it's not 60, right? So we're paying this year, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take all the benefits that came last year and pay a bit, pay a bit this year. So we came into it uh, relatively smooth, but we were running three rigs at the peak in 2019. But I think people forget that because 2020 was so bad, they forget that 2019 was an ugly year too. And our rig counts as an industry were going down all of 19. And we were part of that. And, and it's really because oil was going down from 70 to 50, but the oil field, the kind of the OFS structure was still kind of at the $70 world. And as we as an industry were going towards $50 oil, uh, we weren't making much money. So we were down to two rigs by the end of 19 and even down to one before COVID even hit because we thought 2020 was going to be tough. Now, we didn't remotely see it was going to be as bad as it is, but it was easy to get. What's that? I said, who could have? Yeah, exactly. Who could have for sure. And so it was a little easier for us to kind of, uh, you know, going from third to two to first gear, you know, to neutral was easier than trying to go from third gear to neutral, you know, immediately overnight. So we did go down to zero rigs in April of, of that year, but we, of last year, but we brought the first one back in June. So we've been actually running a rig since June and we're going to add our second rig next month. So we'll be back up to two. So it's been, um, yeah, we're, we're not back up to the three that we were before, but um, we're busy and that's great. And one of the, so the, even now you can argue, let's just call it $60 oil that we have today, short term anyway, that's our pre-COVID number as well. But our cost structure now that we're living with is more like a $50 cost structure in a $60 world, whereas pre-COVID we had a $60 price tech, but a $70 cost, cost structure. Ah. So so that from an upstreamer's point of view, we're doing a lot better now at $60 than we were a year ago at $60. Now, oil field service guys would, you know, beg to differ. And I understand. <laughs> that. um, yeah, that, but that's why today's 60 feels a whole lot better than yesterday's 60. And I feel like that continues to happen. I, I think it, you know, in, in 2016, when the, the industry was really starting to bleed out, everybody really realized okay, I mean, the margins are going to be slim here for a while and everybody had to reduce operating costs. You know, lifting costs had to decrease and, and I think people have learned this is where it needs to stay. Like you said, OFS may not love it, um, but it's a little bit of, of the new reality that, that's in play in the industry. I want to ask you this, Ward, as a, as a CEO in the space, and, and Tim and I have been asking guests this lately, ESG, we keep hearing buzz around ESG. I can't fully wrap my head around it. I, I like getting examples of what it means, but can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what does ESG even mean to a, a CEO of an oil and gas company? And how are you guys addressing this to make it now part of your kind of investor related pitch um, and just sort of a, a fundamental practice as an operator? Uh, yeah. And, and I've been thinking a whole lot about it and we've been doing a whole lot about it. So it's, it's super timely. I, what I, first of all, maybe even backing up to that a little bit, to me, there's energy transition and there's ESG. And those are two different things, at least for a private oil company like us, energy transition, right. Is, is EV and, you know, big picture macro kind of things. Whereas, which, which I don't, or our company doesn't impact. Right. So we're, then we go to ESG 
And to me, ESG is where the rubber meets the road. And it's really a, our old HSE, right? Health, safety, environment that we've always had that vernacular. Now that it's that on steroids, especially on the, on the environmental side. And what that, what that really means for us, I think, because we're kind of doing it right now, is like we've always tracked flaring because that's kind of easy to track as a producer. And um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of basic. We've always done that. But now where the steroids comes is really GHG, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. And so when I see the focus on that, um, now what we are, even as a private company, we're going back down and figuring out what our ESG emissions were last year in 2020 and 2019, because you can really calculate those numbers as how, as how they're done. They're not measured directly with, you know, some meter. It's really a calculation based upon all the machines you, you basically have out there, compressors and motors and all that. So um, I would, you know, a year ago, I would have gone, uh, why would we need to do that? Right. Uh, I mean, we, we try to minimize our emissions for sure, but we're not big enough to, to worry about that in terms of a reporting. And that's completely changed. So, you know, we're making this setting these baselines now uh, and, you know, doing and not only setting you've got to know what you have before you can do something about it. Right. So you've got to plan for it now and measure it. So we can go and improve it, right? So I, I think the whole ESG movement, even for a company, a private company like us, is massive and, and good, quite frankly, because we need to, as an industry, um, we all know how we're getting bombarded, but we've still got to earn, you know, using that term, earn that social license and that the, the cost of that earning that social license is going up every day. And, and, and really that's okay. So we need to treat that as an opportunity to distinguish yourself. So when I think of, again, rubber meets the road, okay, you're going to monitor it all and calculate it. Then you're going to go get, make it better, right? You know, the LDAR, you know, the LDARs, the leak detection and repair going out and fixing methane leaks. Um, the EPA were required, right, to, to, to do that twice a year on, on new horizontal wells. Well, maybe we should be doing that four times a year. Uh, the, those goals of getting kind of routine flaring to zero, not, not just a little bit, but zero. Yeah. You know, pipe everything you can, recycle what you can. That there, there are... On the E part of ESG, that's when I think about what more realistically or, or really in the field, what can you do about it and what should you do about it? And I can foresee that um, after kind of 2021, where we've got some baselines, now we can show our improvement, hopefully. And we may even do our own kind of little public report, not that anybody necessarily cares about Camino specifically, but it'll be out there, right? So as NGP can show that to their LPs and show here's, you know, here's what our teams are doing. So it, it's going to be um, um, a big deal, quite frankly, and, and embrace it. And embrace it. I'm, I'm happy that it's a big deal. Everybody wants cleaner air, so not a problem. Yeah, that's that's cool. I was, you know, I was actually going to ask a question on as a private company. Do you, you, you obviously you don't get the mileage, you know, you don't get the uh, um, you reporting. You're not required to report certain things to the public on emissions. Uh, maybe some, but not your your baseline and what you're doing about it. So you don't get kind of the public mileage that you would get if you're a public company. So I was going to ask if you are actively making decisions, you know, are we going to put a compressor here or not? Are we going to put them in the same place so we can, you know, how do we reduce uh, uh, the diesel engines that we have running out in the field just for not for economic purposes, but for emissions and control, are you guys actively making those decisions now? Um, we will be. I think 
for sure, we will be making those decisions in 2021. We just want to get our baseline first, but we will. And to your point, it's not for economics. Then you might go, well, as a private company, then why? Well, if you have a vision of growing, which we do, and we go into some deal where we're going to say, hey, I'm going to merge with this other company, but, but we want to be the, the survivor. Well, I've got to show both to our backers and to the backers of that other company that we're doing it right. That, 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 that this team has figured out how to do that and kind of compete like a public company. So I think it's going to help, quite frankly, that it's going to help us down the road just for validity and you know, track record that allow it, that really allows us to, to grow. And without that, we might not be able to, we might not get access to more capital. So it's, it's a, there's a selfish reason for that too. Yeah, uh, this is, this is good stuff. And I, I appreciate the, the view into ESG from your seat, because it does seem a little bit ambiguous and vague, even to people like Tim and I, who are energy tech guys, it's just this term that gets thrown around very quickly. And it's like, well, what, what does it mean? People ask us. So I like learning and, and being able to espouse what it is. And I think that's, that's tremendously helpful. One, one more question before we jump into some of the softer stuff that we want to ask. And this is, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this one, but, but what's it like to be an oil and gas CEO? I mean, are you, do you feel like you're just always on waiting for any sort of disaster <laughs> to happen, somebody to call you and how do you build out your, your executive team and, and, you know, sort of the key, key leaders that you bring into the company. What's, what's it like to be an oil and gas CEO? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, are you always on? You are. There's no question. I, I joke and answer the phone when uh, like our head of operations, if, if my head of operations is, is showing up, calling me on a Saturday, it's like, uh-oh, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, I immediately answer the phone with kind of jokingly, it's like, what's wrong? <laughs> it's not hello. It's like, what's the problem? <laughs> So, so from that sense, absolutely, you're on 24-7. doesn't necessarily mean you're thinking about the business 24-7, though my family might claim I am. But, um, so, but uh, you really are on uh, full-time, and that, that's okay. It's part of the fun. Quite frankly, you get lots of benefits of working. For me, the benefits are working the strategy and where are we going and how to get this team together, right? So that, that's the fun part for me, and that, that's what I get out of it, so to speak. Um, but yeah, you're on a hundred percent of the time and, and it's, it's stressful. Yeah. When you do get those phone calls at odd hours, it's like, okay, something, something it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a parent, you know, you, I was just going to say that. And, and Jeremy, your kids are still a little bit younger, but when you're sitting in your office and your, your phone rings at two o'clock and it's one of your daughters and you're like, uh Oh, right. This, this can't be good. She's supposed to be in class right now. Why is she calling me? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. It's uh but it's fun. It's, and it's like you're, you're that kind of leads into the second part of your question, right? It's like that building that team. We're about 75 people. And, you know, I'd say there's, let's just call it, I'm not big on structure, but let's say that I've got seven direct reports. Well, you know, getting those, those right people there are incredibly important. And because they are the ones who then set the tone for the seven or 10 people that are each, you know, reporting directly to them. So, what I think of that is we're still small enough that I get to interview basically every every employee before they get hired. But I, I'm just there as the last check. Right. And, and I'm, I'm just, you know, based upon the recommendation of, of their manager really is what's going to count. And I kind of think through the, those folks, those kind of direct reports. What I've always told all of them for me, my style is basically it's not my job to tell you what to do. It's your job to tell me what to do. And yep. 
I appreciate where the buck stops, but they're all experts in their role way more than I am. Right. And I've, I've, my, my engineering skills have atrophied a long time ago. And <laughs> so you got to find those people uh, who are really good at, you know, at their field of expertise. And it's not just that though. It's also the ethics and the work and, you know, the, just the, the work environment that they set uh, that is where we have a similarity or if we're similar or it wouldn't be right. Or, or we wouldn't be working together. So, the, you know, making sure they're, you know, hard workers and, and ethics comes first, safety comes first, those kind of things that we're always going to do the right thing. And that's fun. And, and we've got that. And that's a blast. So when I see a, I believe our team is an extremely top performing team. And I like to brag about it because I don't really think I have anything to do with it. Uh, the, the, the tone gets set and it, and it just works its way through the organization. And that's a lot of fun. That's a great answer. Thank you. What, so one question that I had, right, you, you and I had sort of a, a prep discussion. And, and uh, as I told you, I'm from, you know, kind of northern New Hampshire and almost equidistant between Boston and, and Montreal. And you said, oh, yeah, my, uh, my daughter goes to college in, in Montreal. So it, what seems crazy to me is anybody who was or really is still in college during COVID, what was that like when it first started? Did, did you say, hey, come home now? Did they send her out? And, and what's the deal? Is she back in school now or, or they're all remote? Like, what, how, how's that yeah. working out with a kid in another country for college? Yeah, it, it, it is amazing. And uh, the, the first thing for that, it was, especially in another country, even though it's obviously a very safe and easy place like Canada, um, the first thought both uh, my wife, Karen, and I had was like, oh, we need to get her home immediately, right? Because you just didn't know what was going to happen. And um, as soon as they said, we're going remote for the rest of the semester, and then you got, well, will the border get shut down? Which effectively it is today, but, but it wasn't in the beginning. So uh, no, it, she flew back here very quickly. And um, so I think it's just any parent feels that way when there's a crisis going on, you want all your family right here, right? So you, you really, so it doesn't matter if they're in grade school or, or in college, that doesn't change. So uh, she came back and, and then really now it's gotten to, she's still here, quite frankly, in Colorado, the, the plan, uh, well, that she went back to Montreal for last semester, which was still online, but able to do it from there. But now Montreal is in such a lockdown that, and with an 8 p.m. curfew that uh, they really care about. Um, it's great to have wow. her back here. Yeah. So uh, I can't go to Canada right now. You, you and I couldn't, but she can with a student visa. But there's just nothing to, quite frankly, to do there other than, than uh, stay in your apartment. So we're both big snowboarders. So uh, we get to snowboard on the weekends. So dad's pretty happy. So she's up in Montreal. Is she uh, fully. Uh, French Does she speak the French? She does. I'm majoring in uh, French and economics. And as a dad uh, or as older person, it's like, great. That's great. Major in French and economics, but don't major in French economics. That wouldn't be very good. <laughs> <laughs> and le leave the wine to the side. If, if you <laughs> exactly. I'll bet you she's an expert on poutine and things like that, too. That's where it's invented. Uh, absolutely. And she's treated me to a lot of great poutine. It's a great, great city. A lot of fun. That's a, it is a fun town for sure. We have to break yeah. down poutine for people who are on the show here. We, we always used to go up there, you know, so that, of course the drinking age in the U S is 21. The drinking age in Quebec is 18, but we yeah. used to say, well, as long as the, your head can be seen over the bar, you might as well be 18. 
in Montreal. So had some fun trips up there in, in high school and that was a blast. All right. My, my last question for you, Ward, before I know you want to get going, beautiful day here in, in Colorado. Where do you like to ski and snowboard up there? What are your go-to spots here in Colorado? Yeah. So uh, we were lucky enough to have a place in Winter Park and I grew up skiing at Mary Jane. I can still remember the first year Mary Jane opened in the late, late seventies or so. And so um, that's where we go most of the time. And we love steamboat as well. And this was spring break week uh, with my daughter much earlier than the U S spring break. So we actually just got back from Telluride yesterday and I hadn't awesome. been to Telluride in 10 years. So it was, it was great just to, to go down there, but we'll, we'll go anywhere in a heartbeat, but it's uh, year 33 for me on a snowboard. So I uh, learned in Alaska as soon as I went up there in the mid eighties. So it's, it's been fun. Yeah. You ski Al Yeska? Oh, absolutely. That was, that's the only place you skied for eight years, which uh, I was a skier before then. And, and after my first year at Alaska, I loved it, but it's like, man, I'm going to be here a while. And this is going to get really boring. So picked up snowboarding and never went back. Yeah. I, yeah. I took the family up there one summer, you know, several years ago um, and took them up. It was in the summer. So we went up Alaska and I learned an interesting tidbit, Jeremy, I bet you don't know this. It's the only ski resort where you start on top of the mountain and finish at sea level. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's so cool when you're skiing down it because you're just staring at the ocean. You're skiing down oh. and the horizon is the ocean. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, sounds a little like Tahoe, but maybe on, on steroids. And, and for everybody listening, trust me, the, the weather here in Colorado, as usual, it's snowy, it's cold. This is not the time of year to come here. You're, you're going to freeze. He's going to freeze. You don't want to do it. Exactly. And it <laughs> rains all the time in Seattle. Uh, yeah, yeah. Every single day of the year. So, Ward, thank you so much. Appreciate you sharing your story, shedding some light, and uh, appreciate your your leadership here in Denver as well as your mentorship to some of the younger folks. So, uh, appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Ward. Ward.